Let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 3. We're going to finish John chapter 3 uh, this morning. So verses 22 through 36. In our offices, in our pastoral offices down the hall, if you go into the conference room, there is a, a, a little sign or a little wall hanging that's been created. It's, it's the uh, kind of letters that you can, you, they're plastic letters and you can push them in and, and create a sign from that. Adrian, uh, many of you know, if there's anything in our church that looks nice, it's been Adrian. If there's anything that looks bad, blame me or the other guys. But if it looks nice, you can attribute that to Adrian. Well, she made this sign. And every time you walk, when I walk into the conference room, I see it. Our mailboxes are there and there's this sign. And on the sign, it says, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It's a theme that has resonated in our church for years. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. I like to call it the algebra. It's a math equation. The algebra of Brandywine Grace. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It's the algebra of the Bible. It, and, and what's behind that is this. And, it, and, it, and this, is, this gets tested at some point in our lives. But if you have Jesus and nothing else, what the Bible says and what the gospel teaches is you have everything. You are blessed with eternal life that begins now and, and, and lasts forever. So you got, you, we got to get our minds around that. Jesus plus nothing equals everything, which means then if you, and there's plenty of people in Chester County, probably your neighbors, who have a lot of money, they have a lot of toys, they have nice cars, they, they have a lot of things, but if they don't have Jesus, so if they have everything, if you could even amass everything that the world could offer you, but you didn't have Jesus, you would be left in the end with nothing. That's what John has been highlighting all through this gospel. He hasn't said those words, but he's highlighting this. He's put this gospel together to help you to see the value and the supremacy of Jesus. Because why? Remember his purpose, verse chapter 20, verse 31. He wants us to see Jesus for who he is, the real Jesus, that you might put your faith in him, that you would believe in him, and through believing, have life. That's his goal. So you might say that Jesus plus nothing equals everything is what he's getting at. He, wants, he doesn't want anyone to read this letter that he's written, and come away saying, Jesus, nah. He wants you to read this letter and say, I must have Jesus. And Jesus has offered himself to me. And God has offered me salvation through sending his son Jesus for me. And so I can have life. He wants that to be your response. He wants that to be my response. So the question that we should ask is this. If Jesus plus nothing equals everything, then Jesus becomes the main thing. Jesus becomes the controlling center of a Christian's life. 
When you reduce a Christian's life down to its barest minimum, to its core, if you boil it down, if you reduce it down, you get to Jesus. He's the controlling center of my life, even though I don't act it all the time. When all is said and done, he is at the center of my life. The question we're asking is, what is at the center of my life? What is the controlling center of my life? Is Jesus the controlling center of my life? Who is driving the car of your life? Is it, does Jesus, have you handed over the wheel to Jesus? Or is Jesus a convenient passenger in the backside, backseat? Every once in a while, I let him drive. But when it comes down to it, I'm in control. This gospel gets at who is the controlling center of your life. And John believes that everyone needs Jesus as the controlling center of their lives. And what he's been doing is showing us over and over the reason why you should let Jesus be the controlling center of your life is because Jesus is better than anything else that you would allow to be there. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. That's what he's been showing us all through this gospel. Remember when Jesus turned water into wine? He was showing us that Jesus is better than the Old Testament purification system. Jesus is better than the law because Jesus fulfills the law for you. So Jesus is better than religion. He's showing us these things. Jesus is, and, and showing us by turning the water into wine, he's showing us that Jesus is lavish and generous. Remember the wine came out at the end that Jesus made. It was the best they'd ever seen. Jesus gives generously. No one will ever give to you the way Jesus gives to you because he's lavish. He's generous. He's better. Remember, we saw this as well. Jesus is better because, remember, he cleansed the temple. He came in and cleaned out the temple. Jesus displaces the temple, the priority of the temple. Why? Because the temple isn't the mediator between God and man. Jesus is actually the one that pleads your case before God. It's Jesus as our great mediator through whom we come and receive salvation. Remember, he showed us that Jesus is better than the serpent lifted up in the wilderness. Remember, Moses provided that. The, you were bit by the fiery serpent, and you looked to the center of the, of the, 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 the tabernacle. You, there was that serpent lifted up, and you looked to that and found relief, found rescue. Jesus is a better rescue for the sting of death and the poison of sin. He's better. And so today you're going to see, we're going to see, and we're going to read the passage right now, that Jesus is better than one of the heroes of the day. The hero we're talking about is John the Baptist. Jesus is better than John the Baptist. And he's better than the, 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 the baptism of the Spirit that he offers is better than the baptism for purification for sins that John the Baptist was preaching. So let's look at this passage and look together asking ourselves how is Jesus better and asking ourselves is Jesus the controlling center of my life 
Verse 22, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John, that's John the Baptist, not the writer of the gospel. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, parentheses, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, remember Jesus and John were together. That was the beginning of the gospel. He who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing Let me give you the tone. And all are going to him. This wasn't excitement on their part. You were the man. Now he seems to be the man. John answered. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness. I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth, and he speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Lord, have mercy. Let's just look for a moment. Let's work through the narrative. And let let me uh, put that map up if we have it, guys. I just want to show you something. It's helpful for me. It starts out, I don't know if you guys can see that. Can you see that at all? You make it out? Okay, so sometimes it's helpful for me. Where are we in this story? Where, where it says, after this, Jesus and his disciples. So what I want to do is show you where they've been. The first place we knew of was the wedding at Canaan. Okay, so there was, there was a wedding at Canaan. And I had this all mapped out on my little map. Now I'm trying to find Canaan. Who sees it? up near Galilee. There it is, Cana. See, oh, there we go. Awesome. Somebody's got that mouse working in there. Good. So you see Cana. Show that again. Cana up there. So there's Cana, and that's near where Jesus was from, and that's where that wedding took place, okay? 
Then it says they went to Capernaum. In chapter 2, verse 12, it says that they went to Capernaum and stayed for a few days. So you see Capernaum over there. Okay, and you see your scale um, down there. So it looks like it's about 15 miles, okay, to Capernaum there north of the Sea of Galilee. Then the next place we see is at the Passover. Remember at the Passover, they went up to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is down. So bring your mouse over there, guys, and drop all the way down in Judea. You see it? So you're a long distance away. You're probably 60 miles away up to Jerusalem. That seems down on the map. Why does it say up? Because up is topographically. Jerusalem sat high on the hill, okay? It's a city on a hill. So they climbed from Capernaum up into Jerusalem. Jerusalem's where they spent the Passover. But then look at verse 22. It says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and it says that John was baptizing near them at Anon near Selim. So if you go up there to the Jordan River, bring our little mouse out, you see Enon and Selim. So follow out. I don't know if you guys can see it there, but Enon, know the other way. Guys, um, moving up north there, you go up to the Jordan River, keep going, there it is, right, boom, right there. So that's where they went. What's the point? They've moved from an urban center where there's a lot of people into the Judean countryside where there was a lot of water, Jesus' ministry is breaking out from the city into the country. In other words, Jesus' ministry is going to go everywhere. It's going to touch everyone. All right? So maybe that helps you a little bit to set the context. What happens? What happens, we see it right here, John the Baptist was continuing to baptize, and he had a ministry that was flourishing, and, and Jesus was it says that he and his disciples, although later it says that uh, his disciples actually did the baptizing. But something happens. John and one of his disciples get into a, an interaction or an argument with some of the Jews, or at least one Jew. And the argument is over purification. Now, what's interesting is the argument doesn't seem to matter at all because that's not the issue that his disciples go back. His disciples go back to John the Baptist and they don't ask any questions about purification. They ask questions about popularity. They ask questions about what's going on here. So it's an interesting detail that there's an argument, but when they come back, the argument is forgotten and they say, Rabbi, Jesus, he was across the Jordan from you. We just learned, we're learning that he's baptizing too and all, it's, a, it's an exaggeration because people were still, John was still baptizing, but the, the, the thrust of the matter is, we used to have lines of people waiting, up, waiting to be baptized by us. And now the lines are formed behind Jesus. And our star and our ministry and our fame seems to be shrinking. And we don't like it. And then John responds. Now, I want to give you what I think is the main point of this passage. I'll say it right now. Jesus 
and faith in him. So this, this passage calls for belief in Jesus. It's not enough to know who Jesus is. It's not enough to just be interested in Jesus. It's not enough to just check out websites on Jesus occasionally. Jesus and faith in him, trust in him is the fulcrum. I'll explain a fulcrum in a minute. It's the fulcrum on which balances the eternal destiny of every single person. That's serious. Jesus and faith in him is the fulcrum on which balances the eternal destiny of every single person in this room, of every single person downstairs, of every single person at home listening, indeed, every single person who is on this earth or who has ever lived on this earth, your eternal destiny rests on what you decide to do with Jesus. A fulcrum. It's like what you used to weigh a balance on. It's the center. It also means something that's central. Something that's essential. The point that John is making here is that Jesus is central. Jesus is essential. And we'll move to verse 36 and see that there are those who believe in Jesus and go on to eternal life. And there are those who will not believe in Jesus, who will reject Jesus. And the consequences are not seeing life. The wrath of God remaining. So what I want to do here is this. There's, there's two things that I want to focus on. The first is I want to look at the attitude of John the Baptist. That's what happens first. Because his attitude actually serves to highlight the centrality of Jesus, the supremacy of Jesus. But then I want to look at his answer, the reasons he gives for why people should turn their attention from him to Jesus. So we're going to look at his attitude, we're going to look at his answers. First, to his attitude. There is, I could preach a message on this. I'm just going to touch a few things and we'll move to his answers. There's a lot of life lessons you can get from John the Baptist's attitude. Lessons that get at this. How do I deal with pride in my life? How do I deal with jealousy in my life? How do I deal when I, how do I deal with that when I feel dissatisfied? When I look around me and I see that they have things that I would like to have or they they seem to be enjoying things that I would like to enjoy. How do you deal with that? I want to turn this section, John the Baptist's attitude, into a sermon for anyone who aspires to pastoral ministry because this is a great example of an attitude that honors Jesus, that puts Jesus at the center and says, I'm okay with moving to the sidelines. Easier said than done. John's disciples are like, John, your star is sinking. You okay with that? We're not okay with that. Are you okay with that? 
Your ministry and your influence is diminishing. What are you going to do about it, John? There's a lot of emotion here. There's disappointment. Watching the the water of their ministry just begin to drip when it used to be a tidal flood. There's anger at those who have left. There were people that were following us and now they're following Jesus and I resent that. There's a lot of emotions. And when you feel emotions, when you're dealing with jealousy, when you're dealing with pride, when you're dealing with dissatisfaction, there's a temptation that I'm sure John the Baptist faced. Many years, he has devoted himself to this calling that he received from a, from a child. He had this calling to, to, to prepare the way of the Lord. So he's got all these years of loneliness. He was like the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's lonely. He's, he's poor. He wears camel hair vests. He eats grasshoppers. I mean, this dude has sacrificed, and his ministry finally came into it, finally hit its stride. All these people now recognizing him. Years of loneliness, years of self-denial, years of rejection, years of alienation. He finally gets headline success. All of a sudden, he's finding success among the people And there's a natural tendency in those moments to assert yourself. Someday your success, whatever it's in, is going to get eclipsed by someone else. You, You used to be the life of the party. And when you show up, Somebody else left the party. Ooh. I'm a seven on the Enneagram. I love being the life of the party. Sometimes I show up, though, and it seems like I got some competition. I don't like that. I got to pull out my best jokes. I got to come up with my best one-liners. I don't, and you don't like it either. Someday, you're going to take a lesser role. Some of you are growing into a larger role. Some of you are, your role is declining for whatever reason. How are you going to react when that happens? John's reaction. First, a person can't receive even one thing unless it's given from heaven. So what does he do? He gives them a proverb. He gives them a maxim. They say, what are you going to do, John? He says, listen, let me paraphrase. Success comes from God. Do you see his heart there? He recognizes any success he's ever had came from God, and any success that he doesn't have comes from God. Everything comes from God. So John is free to say, I'm going to be faithful to what God has called me to do and make God do what seems good to him. So he's okay with something that his followers are not okay with. See, our human tendency is to do this. If we see someone else succeeding, we tend to play down their achievements and we tend to play up our own. 
So here's what we do. If we play it down by saying, oh, well, they, their parents paid for them to go to that college. They were born with a silver spoon in their mouth. They didn't grow up in Delco like I did. But then what do we do with our own? We play up our own. I got here all my hard work and my smarts, and I, I've been grinding. We play up our own. We play down others. John the Baptist refuses to do that. Why? Because he has a high view of God. His high view of God recognizes that God is really, truly sovereign over everything. And so my success, glory to God. If I become less successful, glory to God. Everything I have has come from him. John the Baptist would say, I know who I am. I know what God has called me to. And so I'm free to serve. Oh, guys, when you get out of that comparison fight that so many of us are in, you get set free. When you believe that God is the one who's really orchestrating everything in your life, you are set free from comparing yourself to others. You're just free to serve. So he gives them, John's attitude includes this proverb or this maxim that everything comes from God. Then he gives you this vivid image of a wedding. Remember I was saying last week about vivid illustrations. He gives this vivid illustration. He says, you yourselves bear me witness. I'm not the Christ, but I've been set before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. And so what he's saying is all the followers that are, are, are going to Jesus, they're the bride. They're the bride of Christ. Okay? And the, who's going to be the groom of, of the bride? It's going to be Jesus. And so how does John function? He functions as the best man. And what he's saying is, I'm actually happy. Any good best man doesn't look at the guy's wife and be filled with jealousy that I wish I was marrying her. No doubt that's happened in weddings before. But John the Baptist ain't that kind of guy. He's not that kind of best man. He actually sees the bride coming to Jesus. He hears Jesus' voice and he's happy for him because that's my guy. That's, look at what he's getting. Look at what God is giving him. And I am 100% truly happy for him. That's John the Baptist. He rejoices. Will you rejoice in the success of others? Will you rejoice when you're tempted to jealousy? Or are you proud and bitter and judgmental? This is a word for us, church. The key to John's greatness is his humility. Isn't that so? We think the key to greatness is our pride. We beat our chest. John's key, his greatness, is his humility before God. Oh, that we might be more humble, church. Oh, that there might be more John the Baptist-style humility in us. And then he gives us a great principle for life. Verse 30, he must increase but I must decrease. Jesus moves to the center and I move to the sidelines. And I'm okay with that. I read one man who said, only a great man can accept his demise with joy. (laughs) 
He must become greater. I must become less. I want us, Brandywine Grace, to live our lives, to serve in such a way that what we do, that's what we prayed. The Sunday morning production team and the worship team, we all gathered to pray before the service, and we prayed that whatever we would do, singing, preaching, whatever we would do would, would take the focus off of us and put it on Jesus. Do you want to live that way? Do you want to live your life in such a way that you get all the credit? Or do you want to live your life in such a way that Jesus and his fame is what increases? He must increase, but I must decrease. He must become greater. I must become less. Here's a, a practical thing. Is there anyone you're envious of right now? You can be honest. You are. There's someone probably that you've experienced jealousy of. I've read William Law. He was a Puritan pastor. He says to do something like this. He says, you know what? If you're dealing with, he was commenting on this passage. He said, if you're dealing with any jealousy or bitterness towards someone or your pride is, is just uh, getting tampered with, you feel envious, you should pray for their success the last thing I want to do. They've already got success. You pray for their success. And he says this, even if God doesn't give them any more success, your soul will be cleansed. And you'll grow a little bit more like Jesus and John the Baptist. So if there's anybody that you're feeling envious of, I challenge you to do this. Say something good to them in the next few days. Or say something positive about them to others. That would be a demonstration of real humility. Now, that was his attitude. Let's move to his answers. Let's move to the answers he gives. This is the question that his people are basically asking. They're asking... They're asking, is it right for everyone to go to Jesus? That's really what they're asking. Is that right? Is that okay that they go to Jesus? Is it right that people are going to Jesus? Here's John the Baptist's answer. Yes, because Jesus is better. How's Jesus better? I just want to point out a few things here. Jesus is better because he has a preeminent origin. Look at what he says. He who comes from above. The origin of Jesus is from above. What's that mean? Heaven. The very presence of God. Jesus' home was in heaven. And he came down from heaven and he's going back to heaven. John the Baptist is saying, I'm not from heaven. I didn't, my origin is not of heaven. My origin is of the earth. So, so Jesus has to be better because he came from above, above all. I'm just a man. I'm just from earth. So Jesus is better. John the Baptist is saying, I'm a human. Jesus is human. He took on humanity. He took on flesh, but he's the son of God. So he's better. And he offers a better salvation. If you put your trust in John the Baptist, you won't get eternal life. you got to put your trust in the one that John the Baptist was preaching. 
So Jesus is better because of his origin. Jesus is better also because of the word that he speaks. Look at verse 32. He bears witness to what he's seen and heard. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters what? The words of God. He's saying the source of his word is better than anyone else. Because his word comes from heaven. It comes from God. The words Jesus speaks are God's word. You can't say that about any other human being. Even the prophets, when they prophesied, they prophesied in part. They were given the word of God, but they experienced the spirit of God speaking to them at certain times. Jesus, it says, has the spirit with him all the time. Every day, all day, 24-7. Jesus has the Spirit. So the words he speaks are God's words. John the Baptist spoke God's word as as God made him aware of it. Jesus, we're told from John, is the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. So Jesus is better because he actually is the word. How else is Jesus better? Jesus is better... Because, for he gives the Spirit without measure. And then he goes on to say, the Father loves Jesus and has given all things into his hand. How is Jesus better? He's got better resources than anyone. He's got better resources to care for you than anything else. How, what does he have? He's got everything. He's got everything. God, the Father, has put everything into his hands. His resources are unlimited. That means if you believe in Jesus, then you have that belief. That faith is the key that opens the gateway to heaven to you. And so you have access to everything that has been given to Jesus. What's been given to Jesus? Everything. So if you have access to God through the Son, you have everything. You have everything. Church, are you praying like that? Are you praying like you have a key to heaven? Your belief in God is a key that opens the storehouses of heaven to you. You have access to God, which means you have, you have, you have access to infinity. Are you praying like that? Are your prayers weak? Listen, if we don't pray with faith, If it's not faith in Jesus with which we pray, then our prayers don't get through that gateway to heaven. It's it's faith in Jesus that opens heaven to us. I was talking with someone this week who's going through a very difficult trial, and I was encouraging them. I was saying, guys, your faith and your trust in Jesus through this trial, it's been ongoing for years. I want you to know, and Jesus wants you to know, that he is hearing your prayers. He hears them. He will hear them. He's always heard them. And you have access to him through your faith and belief in him. Amen, church. You have access to Jesus. You have access to God through your belief in him. I've been trying to tell you that Jesus and faith in him is the fulcrum on which balances the eternal destiny of every single person. And that is brought into vivid focus when we get to verse 36. John says again what he's already said in this gospel. Whoever believes in Jesus has life. 
Whoever does not obey, does not believe, the Son shall not see life. What's at stake when we think of the ministry of Jesus? It's the bringing of salvation to the entire world. Jesus is the one from heaven. He's the one that God sent in his love to the world to offer salvation to everyone who believes in him. This is why it's the fulcrum, guys. If you want to have eternal life, it's through Jesus. Believing in him brings eternal life. It brings the rebirth that he spoke to Nicodemus about. It brings this personal experience of the spirit. And it brings endless life in the kingdom of God. Do you have that, church? Do you want that, church? If you want it, it comes through Jesus and belief in him. There's no other way. The most important question you should be asking yourself right now, if you're listening, is do I have that? Have I believed in Jesus? If you have, then you have Jesus and eternal life. If you haven't, then the scripture tells us there's a consequence. Who doesn't, who doesn't have the Son shall not see life. All who don't come to Jesus, all who don't believe in him, all who reject him and his salvation are consigned to the worst of judgments. You won't see life. Well, what will you see then? If I can't see life, what's the opposite of life? What will I see? If I will not see life, then what I'm in for is death. Death eternal. The wrath of God, man. It's all over our Bibles, but ain't nobody reading it. Nobody wants a message on the wrath. Man, we come here to get happy, Kenny. You mean I got up for this, put my mask on, climbed up into this service? Jesus takes the wrath of God with awesome seriousness. That's why he came. Scripture says that we're all under that wrath. Why did Jesus come? He made it so clear in John 3.16. To rescue you from that. He's serious about this. That's why I say he's the fulcrum. He's the controlling center of our lives. Because he's offering us a way out. Don't get this messed up. Don't get this messed up. We tend to think, oh, God's wrath. Jesus came to condemn. The scripture says that was not his primary purpose in coming. He didn't come to, con come to condemn the world. He actually came, what, church? To save the world. The condemning will just be a secondary consequence for everyone who refuses him. Are you refusing Jesus? Are you rejecting Jesus? If you are, you will not see life. That's what Jesus says. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Happy are all who take refuge in him. While you have the opportunity, please take Jesus. While we have the opportunity, we should urge anyone that we know, anyone that we consider a friend, to accept and believe in Jesus.
to respond to his offer, to his great love. Why? Because his wrath is real and it's coming. Jesus' primary purpose was come to save. Would you be, would you be saved? You got to go to Jesus. You got to cling to Jesus. You got to believe in Jesus. And then you enjoy life in Him. Why? Because Jesus is better. Why? Because Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Amen.